listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Jesus is beginning a transition of sorts. He sent the apostles, the 12 apostles, on a training op. He gave them power and authority to heal people of all diseases and to cast out demons. So the disciples, the 12 apostles, have gone out and they've done that with great success. And now they're coming back and they're reporting to Jesus all that they've done. They're giving a report. Luke chapter 9, verse 10. This is an important lesson for us to remember, the significance of handing the baton off, building into somebody else's life. This past week, I was reminded, I I got a box in the mail, package in the mail, and all of us like to get boxes, no matter what it is that we get. We always like opening the box and anticipating, so I got out a knife to cut open the box, and as I was eager to see what was inside, I knew what was inside, I was excited about what I was going to get because I had ordered it, and I began to slice it open, and my son caught wind of this and came right running over. Now he had to be part of it. My son had to be part of it. Now I knew that I could have ripped open that box in two seconds flat, but now my son was involved and there was a knife involved. Now you don't have to know rocket science to know that a young boy and a sharp knife is a prescription for an accident. So I had to slow down. I had to slow down and stop and help my son teach my son how to open the box so that he didn't open something else. If you know what I'm saying. It takes time to build into people, to disciple somebody else, to invest in them. You might not be able to do things as quickly as you otherwise would do them if you're investing in the life of your children. If you have children now, if you're going to have children, or if you had children, you'd know that the journey is slower with children, but speed is not necessarily the objective. Last time together, we talked a little bit about homeschooling. Now, you might choose to send your child to public schools for reading, science, math, social studies, history. You might choose to send your child to your own school and homeschool your children with reading, science, math, social studies, and history. Either one of those choices can be a wise, good, effective choice. It's between you and God. There's not one way to school your children that's more godly than another. The fact of the matter is, however, regardless of who teaches your children math, now I'm not teaching my children math, I can tell you that right now, regardless of who teaches your children the formal subjects, the fact of the matter is that every single one of us, if you have children or you're going to have children or you had children, was, is, or will be a homeschooler in regard to the spiritual things you're teaching your children that cannot be farmed out to somebody else. Many of us are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Many of us, in the process of schooling our children one place or another, are negating and neglecting, shirking the responsibility that falls squarely on the shoulders of parents and guardians with young children in our houses. We are given the charge by God to disciple our children. There's a sense in which at large, the body of Christ, we disciple young people. We have programs and we have training and we get together in different capacities and train and teach children, train and teach teens, train and teach adults. The learning never ends. 
But that is not to be intended. It's not intended to be a substitute for what is taking place in the home, which is discipleship. It's just a matter of whether the discipleship is for better or for worse. Every single one of us, if we have children under our care, we are homeschooling. If we had children under our care, you homeschooled, whether you knew it, realized it, or didn't. If you're going to have children under your care, you are going to be a homeschooler, and it is your responsibility to train and to teach your children things about God, things about the scriptures by modeling. Your children are always watching. Now, if the objective was speed to get from point A to point B, I'm not going to do one of those crazy geometry equations that you used to do in school that used to drive you nuts, still drive me nuts. John left in a train from point A. He traveled 43 and a half minutes to point B. I'm confused already. Speed is not the objective when it comes to discipleship. Learning the lessons is what's important, and that takes time. Your children are watching you. The 12 apostles were watching Jesus. And Jesus has sent them as a matter of investing in them, as a matter of replication, as a matter of discipleship, as a matter of legacy. He's begun to pass the baton and he's investing in the 12 apostles. He sends them out on a training op to heal and to cast out demons. And they come back now and they're giving the report. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he... Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And Jesus quickly became annoyed and sent them away, saying, Would you please give me a break? I've got better things to do. It's the reversed standard version. Doesn't say that. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. We see Jesus continually being patient, understanding that the main reason he came was to create a legacy. The main reason he came was to teach people the ways of God, and that meant that there were going to be interruptions along the way. Haven't you noticed that life is what happens while you're making other plans? There are interruptions that happen in the course of your life. As you're going someplace, something might happen. This week, again, I've been without a car because it's broken down yet again. So I've had to adjust my schedule, adjust my life around what has happened in the course of life. And what we see Jesus doing here is staying absolutely right on, spot on, completely focused with laser accuracy, the purpose of why he came. Would have been ironic if Jesus became impatient and insensitive and missed the very purpose of why he came, which was to teach and to cure and to heal. Most of all, first and foremost, all of those other things are to point us to salvation. The point in which everybody individually comes to personal responsibility for what they will do with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection, God the Father's seal of approval that everything that Jesus did, everything he taught was authentic from God the Father, approved of by God the Father. There could not be any bigger, more significant statement than the resurrection. It's God the Father saying, I approve of everything that Jesus did. 
So we see Jesus demonstrating absolute patience, absolute clarity of purpose, purpose of vision. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, verse 12, the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. It's dinner time. They've been with Jesus, talking with Jesus. They're in a place where there's not a sure find. There's no giant. There's no Weiss. There's no Eastern market. There's no Saturday market. There are no pretzels to be had. There's none of the delicious foods that they would otherwise be enjoying. They are far enough away from food and from drink that it's called a desolate place. And so they recognize that they've got a problem. And the problem really was created in part by Jesus because Jesus would have had foresight, would have known that the people would have followed him. And Jesus is the one who told the 12, don't take a staff, don't take a bag, don't take money, don't take an extra pair of underwear, don't take anything with you. The idea was they were supposed to leave everything behind and take up the greater cause, which was surrender to Jesus Christ. So they have empty pockets. They don't have anything even for themselves. Unless Jesus is hiding a stash someplace of food, hopefully it would be spaghetti and meatballs. Unless Jesus is hiding a stash of food someplace, they don't have anything to give this crowd. And so Jesus creates the problem that now is going to be solved so that it results in the people getting a clearer picture of who he is. Make no mistake about it, this passage is to help solidify the identity of Jesus Christ and now the identity of 12 in particular. You might have heard of this story as being the feeding of the 5,000, and I tell you, you're wrong. It is the feeding of the 5,012. The problem with this particular passage of Scripture is that we've read it so much, if we've been in church for any length of time, we think we know what it says. And therefore, we'd read this passage, think we understand, zip through, and get on to the next section and miss whole portions here. We have to understand the context in which Jesus behaved. What is the backdrop in which Jesus performs what we're about to read, this miraculous multiplication of bread and fish? We have to understand and rediscover what's happening here. Verse 14, excuse me, verse 13. He said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and to buy food for all these people. We know from John 6, and Mark chapter 6, that it would take 200 denarii or 200 days wages to begin to possibly have enough to feed all these people. Verse 14, because there were about 5,000 men. This does not include the women and the children. 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. See, what they did, if you read the other gospel accounts, the feeding of the 5,012 as I like to call it. The bread and the small fish come from a boy. They have to go out and figure out where are we going to get this food from. They take inventory quickly and realize there's a boy here who's got five loaves and two fish, but that's all we have. We don't have enough in the money bag. 
We don't even have enough at our access here in this desolate place that you've called us to come and get away free from distraction. And Jesus tells them, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each in verse 15. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. 12 baskets of broken pieces, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. It's significant, the number 12, it's significant that their baskets are full because these men who had left everything literally in obedience to Jesus had been told to leave everything behind. And now Jesus, out of their lack, in a desolate place, is going to do something that will confirm Jesus' own identity and the identity of the 12. Look with me in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, an amazing passage of Scripture says this, beginning in verse 24. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, aren't you glad that we don't have that debate today? Which church is the best church? Which pastor is the best pastor? Which church has the nicest facility, the best program, the best youth program, the best marriage counseling program? Aren't you glad that we don't have those same types of issues and discussions today? I mean, after all, they'd only been with Jesus by the time we get to Luke chapter 22. They'd only been with Jesus a few years. Jesus had already been investing and pouring into them, and by this time, you think they'd understand, they'd get it, what it was about, and yet they didn't get it. The more things change, the more they stay the same. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, said Jesus, I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom." that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What? Sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Jesus is passing the baton, investing in these disciples, investing in these 12. It's a good lesson for us to understand that speed is not the issue, but legacy is. Investing in somebody reliable who will take what you are learning and pass it on is important. It's imperative. Every disciple has something to pass on. If you're not passing on something, something is wrong, and it's not with God. Your life should be replicatable. Your life should be something that others would want to emulate. It should be emulatable. Others should be looking at you and saying, I want to be like you. You should be able to be investing in other people. You should be investing. If you have par- if your parents and you have children, you should be investing in your children, passing on a spiritual heritage, a spiritual legacy. But you might not have children. 
It doesn't matter whether you have children in the natural or not, whether you've adopted children in Christ, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ, God puts around you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to build into the lives of other people, to disciple, to replicate, to on what you've learned. Spare somebody else the hardship of what you now know was hardship then because you didn't know any better. Well, now you know better about certain things. Every follower of Jesus Christ, sooner or later, every follower of Jesus Christ has something positive to share with somebody else to spare them difficulty and hardship they otherwise would go through if somebody didn't just come alongside and help them understand. You have a legacy to build. And it's a legacy for the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching these men, showing these men with the 12 baskets that are full of broken pieces at the end. It's ex nihilo. The fancy phrase that's used for out of nothing. That's how creation happened. From out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we believe. Well, God is in the business of creating something out of nothing. He's done it with your life. That's what he does with people. He creates something beautiful out of something that's not so beautiful. And these men, these 12, had left everything in obedience to Jesus. No staff, no bag. No money. They were not allowed to take a second pair of underwear. Nothing. They leave it all behind in obedience to Jesus. And the question would have been, will they be provided for by Jesus? See, what Jesus is teaching them is that if they would be about God's business, God would be about theirs. And the fact of the matter is that you and I, we struggle from time to time. We struggle with wondering whether or not God will really provide for us. If we give it all to Jesus, will there be anything left over for me? Have you not struggled with that? Guess what? It's not going away anytime soon. The apostles had given up everything to follow Jesus. And now at the end of it all, from five loaves and two fishes... 12 baskets, one for each of the apostles and one apostle for each of the tribes of Israel who will eventually rule on thrones, judging the people of Israel, being taught in no uncertain terms that they have a place in the kingdom. What we see here is a synergy of Jesus building and expanding the kingdom through mere mortals. These disciples have left everything and now they end up with an abundance and Jesus is saying, You don't need to worry when you follow me. You don't need to wonder if I will take care of your business, if I will take care of you while you are taking care of me. This is the great exchange. It's Christ's life for you because you owed a debt that you couldn't pay. Jesus paid a debt that he didn't know. It's Christ's life for you And then watch, it's your life for Christ. And these apostles who had left everything needed 
to learn. They needed to be taught. They needed to understand that while Jesus is busy feeding the 5,000, he's also going to feed the 12. That's why I say it's the feeding of the 5,012. It's very easy in the course of serving God and ministering for God, whether you're paid or whether you're good for nothing. It doesn't matter. It's very easy in the course of serving God to be so concerned, so consumed with helping other people, serving God in such a way that it's effective in the lives of other people, that you forget that God does care about you in the process. He does want to take care of your needs. He does want to provide for you. He loves you as well. It wasn't just 5,000 men. On top of that, it was women and children in addition. You probably had about seven to eight, possibly 10,000 to 50,000. 15,000 people here being fed with five loaves of bread and small fish. And it comes from somewhere. It comes from someone. It comes from Jesus. And it's not only the crowds that Jesus is interested in feeding, it's also the 12. These guys had to understand that it was safe to trust Jesus. It was good to trust Jesus. We need to learn today, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's the safest place to be, to trust Jesus in a desolate place, in a place where it doesn't make sense and you don't have what you think you need to do what God has called you to do. That's the best place you could be because that's when you get the opportunity to see Jesus for who he is. And that's what this passage is about. This passage is helping us understand to discover and rediscover who Jesus is. The identity of Jesus is central to everything in life, for better or for worse. A right understanding of the identity of Jesus and your submission to that understanding of who Jesus is and the person of Jesus and giving your life to Jesus changes everything about your life. I'm looking at people here who given their lives to Jesus, got baptized here in the course of this past year. And their lives are dramatically different, not totally different, but fundamentally different in the process of becoming totally different. You're on a journey. I'm on a journey. We are on a journey individually and together as the family of God. A great metamorphosis is taking place in which you are no longer behaving the way you used to behave in increasing measure, and you're behaving more and more with the character of Jesus Christ, behaving more and more in a way that honors God. And you know what? As you honor God, it's actually pleasing to you as well. There's no more comfortable place to be than in the center of God's will, in the center of surrender, living a surrendered life. And for those of you who are not walking in surrender, you know exactly what I'm meaning. There's no worse, more miserable place to be than to be resisting Jesus Christ. These apostles had to get it through their heads that if they gave ever, give up everything for Jesus Christ, Jesus would provide for them in abundance. Now, some of us, we get off track because of the abuses that have been done in the name of ministry with guys wearing certain types of suits that are extravagant and having houses that are extravagant and driving cars that are extravagant. And it just goes on and on and on. Just because things are permissible does not make them beneficial. And there have been abuses of people thinking that it's their right as a servant of Jesus Christ, that you're the head and not the tails, and therefore you should be living an abundant life, and people have gotten caught up, as the book of James says. Many 
having been deceived by the pursuit of wealth, have ended up being snared by the wealth they pursue. It's not about having and amassing things and stuff. Just because Jesus provides for you doesn't mean you have to go over the edge and you have to be gaudy, that you have to have, 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 more, more, more. But we want to be careful that we don't have the pendulum swing over to the other side and now you begin thinking incorrectly about Jesus as if he was a poor pauper prince and that he doesn't want you to have anything and that you have to hang your head down low, being discouraged all the time and not having anything provided for you whatsoever and just doing the work of God for other people and God doesn't care about you. He's not interested in you. He doesn't love you. Listen, it was the feeding of the 5,012, not just the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus demonstrates very clearly that he cared for and he cares for the apostles in as much as he cares for you and me today. He cares for us. He's able to meet your needs as you're in the process of being the hands and feet of Jesus and meeting the needs of others as well. This passage is all about the identity of Jesus. Look with me in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. You have to understand the context in which Jesus is performing this miraculous sign and wonder, in which it's not just Jesus performing it, it's also the apostles now in an amazing feat. Now they are working together in harmony. Man and God working together in harmony, kind of a taste, a flavor of what it's going to be like in the millennial kingdom. When Jesus comes and culminates everything and we're here, those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, when we're with him on this earth, we will be working together with God. God. Does God need the 12 apostles? No. Did he call the 12 apostles? Yes. Does God need you to build his kingdom? No. Has God called you to build his kingdom? Yes. The context here is that there have been 400 years of silence. 400 years. The prophet Malachi, the last of the Italian prophets, the first and only, as I like to call him. Malachi. It's been 400 years since that book and there has been no miraculous sign and wonder performed by anybody. No prophet of God has been risen up. No prophet of God has come onto the scene at all for 400 years. Silence. And now Jesus begins to perform sign after sign, miracle after miracle. God has broken his silence. And if you find yourself in the midst of silence now, remember that when God breaks a silence, he knows how to do it. Sometimes silence is the exact thing that God needs in order to make a grand statement. And in this particular case, it was 400 years where no prophet had spoken, no miraculous sign of wonder, and Jesus comes on the scene, and you would be able to connect the dots if you were to see Jesus doing these things, hear Jesus' teachings, and observe. It would perhaps bring about a deja vu experience with Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Call that as you see what happens here. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Now hold it right there. The second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, they had seen the pillar of cloud. 
They had seen the pillar of fire. They had walked through the Red Sea together, a wall of water on the left, wall of water on the right. Whether you believe it was knee-high or higher is irrelevant. God was able to drown the entire Egyptian army in knee-high height of water. I don't care what you want to believe about that. These people had seen miracle after miracle, and two months have passed, and they are suffering from something that you suffer from, something that I suffer from, spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten who God was already, forgotten what he can do. And so Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, and then begin in verse 2. Let's pick it up in verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they, were, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now hold it right there. On the seventh day, the manna, which means what is it? Now, if you're from the hood, it's what it is. I know you're not from the hood because you don't understand what I just said. <clears throat> Some have said that this repeatable event of the manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? Some of you have watched programs on television where it's been explained away as this is a wafer-like substance that worms produce in the morning hours, and it's a wafer-like substance that in the heat it dissolves, but early in the morning, just like the Israelites are told, they can pick it up and eat it early in the morning. It can provide some sustenance. Sounds kind of gross, doesn't it, to eat something that came from a worm? And people try to explain it away and say, well, that's what the manna was. It's just a repeatable event. It's nothing miraculous at all. Well, then, well, tell me how the worms all went on vacation on the seventh day. See, there are people out there, you're not one of them, hopefully, who are members of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society. They read the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed. And when you do that, you read portions of Scripture and miss others. The Bible says that on the seventh day in that manna passage, on the seventh day, there was no manna. That's why they were to gather twice as much on the sixth day. And on the fifth day, the fourth day, the third day, the second day, and the first day, they were not to gather more than what they needed for that day. If it did, it would rot and decay. Supernatural, miraculous provision of God. Make no bones about it. And this is what's being referred to here in Exodus. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. 
And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. Notice the wilderness. The apostles are in a desolate place. There's a parallel here. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Jesus is appearing on the scene and demonstrating himself to be the new prophet, breaking the silence of God the Father by showing up and performing miraculous signs and wonders similar to that of which Moses performed. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we're told that God would raise up a prophet among the people like Moses, and the people were to listen to him, Jesus, being born of a Jewish family. One of the Jewish people raised up is that very prophet. We see that God is making a statement clarifying the identity of Jesus Christ. And if you were a Jewish person, understanding the silence that they had endured for 400 years, and now Jesus is on the scene and performing this miraculous signs and wonders, it would have been a deja vu experience similar to, for example, 2 Kings chapter 4 in verse 42. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42, a man came from Baal Shalishah. Try to say that 10 times fast. Bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, notice it's Elisha. Here's again the principle of replication. Elisha was trained, discipled, mentored, affirmed, released by a man of God named Elijah. Elisha is the one who receives, the scripture says, a double portion of the spirit of Elijah because he sees Elijah go up in the chariot. And that would be the sign that the mantle that was on Elijah, the approval of God the Father that was on Elijah would be on Elijah. There's a principle of replication and building in and legacy and passing things on all through the scriptures. We just need to see it. And here Elisha is the man. Elisha is the one. Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. Now watch this. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? In other words, this is not enough food for a hundred men. Sound familiar? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Interesting passage of scripture that this is something that has happened before where there was a need for people to eat and have sustenance. There was an inability of people, naturally speaking, humanly speaking, to provide for it. And who shows up on the scene and provides? God himself. So the statement that's being made here, the 400 years of silence that is being shattered, completely broken, is that God's new prophet has shown up on the scenes. We know from reading other parts of scripture that Jesus is not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. But what we see here is unfolding little by little, more and more, we see that the revelation of Jesus is becoming clearer to the people and certainly clearer to the apostles. 
They would have had plenty of time to discuss the significance of this. And Jesus, having only had at this particular time the Old Testament scriptures from which he would have taught as a rabbi, would have been teaching them. And there would have been plenty of one-on-one and 12-on-one time for Jesus to be discipling them and pouring into them what they needed to know. And what they needed to know is what you and I need to know. That the identity of Jesus Christ is set in stone as the chief cornerstone himself. It's not something that's up for debate and up for discussion. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And he's able to do what we don't even understand and comprehend he can do. For example, in Isaiah chapter 55. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, what? He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's counterintuitive. That's not good economics. How can you possibly buy something if you don't have the money to buy it? How is that even possible? Well, it's possible because what God is talking about being our greatest need, the bread and the wine, the sustenance, is not just for physical nourishment. It's first and foremost the spiritual need that every single one of us has to be fed by God himself. And who can repay God for what he decided to give us and what only he can give us? Isaiah 55.1, an amazing passage of scripture. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The disciples are being taught by the hand of Jesus that it is a partnership with God. This is what we are called to as disciples of Jesus Christ. We are called to partner, to co-labor with God. How does that float your boat? How does that blow your mind and blow your circuits to comprehend that God is building his kingdom and although he doesn't need us, although he doesn't require us to, to in order to build his kingdom, in order to spread the aroma of Christ everywhere, he invites us to do that. That just as there was a partnership between the 12 then and the son of God, Jesus Just as there was a joining of hands and a joining of hearts and a mission and a rekindling, so to speak, of what we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that was hindered through the fall, through the crash, going into the world and subduing it, being a co-laborer for God is now being restored and taking a quantum leap forward as God is inviting mere mortals to join him in building the only kingdom that will endure forever and showing these mere mortals, these mere men, showing them that he will provide for them as they provide for him. Now listen, you might be saying, I'm not worthy to be part of that plan. There are other people who are more worthy than me. I know exactly what you're feeling. Because I often, listen, let me be brutally honest with you, and you can think less of me on your lunchtime. 
I often recognize that there are better looking people than me. There are more highly gifted people than me. There are people who have more financial resources than me. There are people who have less baggage than I have, who are better candidates for being used by God. That never ends. There are many times, multiple times, when I'm overwhelmed with such a sense of unworthiness that it's absolutely debilitating if I let it get the best of me. But I don't preach the gospel and I don't pastor because of the satisfaction that I get out of it, even though it provides me tremendous satisfaction. I do it because Jesus is worthy. I do it because people need to know that it's possible to have bread that you didn't pay for and wine that you didn't earn, to have spiritual nourishment, to have new life that's possible only because Jesus gives it. God the Father gives it through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you keep waiting to have a sense of worthiness to serve God, you'll always be holding yourself back. If you keep waiting for God to make you more attractive, to give you more money, to take away all of your baggage, we're all getting on flights with far more than a carry-on. If you wait for all of that stuff to be taken care of before God can use you, you're missing the whole point of what God is teaching us here with the 12, one of whom was a traitor, one of whom was a backstabber. If God can use these regular guys to do irregular, extraordinary, unbelievable, mind-blowing, life-changing, supernatural, above and beyond things, he can use you too. Because that's the business that God's in. He takes something and makes something out of nothing. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.